Hi, I'm Mari. Thank you all for listening to all the programs on KUCI. This week is Fun Drive Week. KUCI is committed to bring you great public affairs shows and terrific music. We love to give you the gift of great listening. So now we are asking you to give back to this station to support all your favorite shows. Please pledge your tax-deductible donation to continue all our great programs. You may call and pledge at 824-5824 or UCI-KUCI or go online and pledge at KUCI.org. When you call in your gift, you will also be eligible to receive a pledge gift back from KUCI. But most of all, you will help to continue the great shows that air 24-7. So thank you for calling right now, UCI-KUCI-824-5824, or go online and pledge at www.KUCI.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is fascinating because it's really about one of the issues that the government has kept private from us. And some people don't want to even talk about these things if they've seen them, and that's UFOs. And so let me tell you a little bit about who I'm going to interview and and why I'm going to interview. We're going to be interviewing a wonderful uh, UFO uh, ufologist, as we would call it, Steve Marillo. But let me tell you first a little bit about why I've decided to interview him. We are excited because the world's largest UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects Conference, Contact in the Desert, is returning for its seventh year on May 31st through June 3rd, 2019 in Indian Wells, California. And it's the most co- it has the most comprehensive lineup of experts ever assembled, and they will lecture on the latest developments in UFO studies, government disclosure and non-disclosure, ancient civilizations, crop circles, and much more. The event grows exponentially every year with attendees from all over the globe gathering for panel discussions, workshops, film screenings, speaker meets and greets, and night sky gazing, and tours of the area's historic UFO sites. So the Contact in the Desert 2019 will be held at the Renaissance Indian Wells Resort and Spa, and is expected to surpass 7,000 participants. And Lloyd, you and I are going to be going too, but people can find out more about it at contactinthedesert.com. Dot com, And I want to tell you about our wonderful guest who is one of the great speakers who will be presenting at this conference. Let me tell you about Steve Marilla, who we are going to be interviewing right now. 
Um, he attended the United States Naval Academy, where he received the Bachelor of Science degree in systems engineering, and he was commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps, and he attended flight school and served for seven years of duty as a jet pilot and maintenance officer for his squadron. Then after he left the Marine Corps, he was hired by the aerospace company TRW, where he became the power systems engineer for a satellite program known as Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System, Flight 7. And then after a successful career in that, he decided to pursue his real passion, which was real estate in Southern California, which is a great place to do it. But we're going to talk to him today really about what changed his life forever and how he became an expert in UFO you know, the things in UFO. And so we're going to, you know, find out all of that, all that he has done. And um, he now heads um, a, uh, he heads up the UFO and Paranormal Research Society in Los Angeles. He and he and his group investigate all things UFO and paranormal, and they have monthly meetings in Studio City, California. So if you're interested, you can go to that website, which is U-P-A-R-S-L-A for Los Angeles.org. But we're going to find out a lot more from him. So Steve, so uh, we're just so excited to have you on our show to talk about your whole experience in getting into the whole realm of UFOs. So Steve, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Mari. Yeah, so you got to tell me, how is it that a former Marine Corps jet pilot and a graduate of a Naval Academy became a UFO, uh, how do I pronounce it, ufologist? <laughs> no, ufo ufologist is ufologist. how a lot of people say it. You know, okay. it's sort of a... It's it's a commonly used term. It's just just you know, yeah. it means somebody who's interested in and is actively studying the field of ufology. You know, yeah, ufology. So of course, nowadays they're calling it uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon is the new oh. kind of hip way to say it. But you know, people who've been in it for a long time still use ufology and UFO, you know, as the term. Right. But anyway, um, I got into it when I was already out of of course out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I had already left TRW as an engineer, and I was uh, working in the real estate field, which I still do. I'm speaking to you from my office in Manhattan Beach, where I do mortgages and real estate. So, um, but in 2001, uh, I happened to be sitting uh, on my rooftop deck. It was about 9:30 at night. I was in my hot tub looking at the ocean, and um, I see a uh, some objects approaching, which I think initially are seagulls. Uh, coming off the ocean, but but keep in mind that it's it's pitch black, and or it's nighttime anyway. And I'm thinking to myself, why is somebody shining a spotlight on seagulls? That's the first image that came to my mind because these things were exceptionally bright. Right. And as they're approaching directly from the west over my head, I see they're not seagulls at all, but they're these triangular shaped objects, not perfect triangles. They look sort of like ninja throwing stars, each one, and they were in a flight of five with one in the lead and then two both, uh, both sides, sort of a delta formation. And they flew over my head silently. They were about, to my eye, about the size of a car if it was parked across the street. Mm. Each one of them was lit up, um, solid light. They, they didn't have little navigation lights on or blinking lights on. They, each one was a solid, coherent light, slightly off-white, amberish tone to it. Uh, they flew silently over my head. 
And then um, as they went from over my head to the east, three of them split off very, very quickly and moved across the sky, slid. They didn't turn like a normal jet. A jet uses the air to fly. It, 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 it turns, it, it basically angles and then banks, right? That's how a jet flies. Right. That's how a jet would turn. But these things just slid across the sky. And then the, uh, and two of them continued in the, you know, the path they were going while the other three left. And then after about three, three seconds or so, the two that got left behind, so to speak, slid across the sky at a very, very high rate of speed, joined up with the other three, and then they were gone. And from that experience, from that, from those few seconds that I was able to uh, witness this, I knew that these things were not from our inventory of military aircraft. I knew that they, the way they moved defied gravity. They, they moved as if they didn't have obey the laws of gravity, no inertia. And I, you know, I jumped out of my hot tub surprised and yelling at my <laughs> wife and went downstairs and started getting on the computer and researching, you know, report a UFO. Right, right. And uh, the first thing that happened, I came across finally a, a page. I actually even called uh, Los Angeles Airport Tower and Los Angeles Airport uh, Approach, Los Angeles Approach, and to see if anybody had anything on radar. And nobody had anything on radar, of course. So then I started doing more research online and uh, came up and filed a report on uh, MUFON Los Angeles's website. And that's kind of what started me on my quest. And that was in 2001, in May of 2001. Wow. And you, as a, you know, as a pilot yourself, you would know more than I would know about, wait, this is something we can't do, <laughs> especially yeah. at that time. And, and being an engineer, you would also know that. So there was a lot of credibility in this. This is this was not weather balloons, right? <laughs> yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah, not weather balloons at all. And and not, you know, low-flying airplanes or anything else or drones. At the time, of course, they didn't, nobody really had drones. But um, yeah, these things moved uh, quite differently than anything I was used to looking at and um, having been familiar with just about everything in, everything in our inventory and, of course, uh, what's in the Soviet inventory, I knew that this, these things did not, uh, should not exist. Right. So how did people react when you shared your experience? Well, you know, most people who have these sorts of experiences don't go blabbing it out, especially... You know, when you have a lot on the line, for example, um, you know, when, when I list a home, it's usually a multi-million dollar home. Or when I'm engaged in helping somebody finance a, a piece of real estate, the loans tend to be up in the million dollar range. And so those types of people don't want to think that, uh, you know. They got a like crazy guy. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they got right. a crazy guy at the wheel, right? <laughs> and But that's the way they, you know, that's the way our society has been programmed to receive this information starting from the 50s when the CIA started a campaign campaign of disinformation right. um, regarding this field, basically, you know, in 1947 Roswell happened. Right. Uh, right. A couple months later, the CIA was born. And basically that was an outcropping of something called majestic 12, right. which was a board of uh, scientists and military advisors who got together after Roswell. And uh, this, they were put together basically to decide what to do about this phenomenon and now with the Roswell crash, what to do with this technology. So Majestic 12 was developed, the CIA was developed, and the CIA began disinformation um, shortly thereafter. In the 50s it starts and uh, you, you can track the way, the way this subject was treated before and after that, and you can see it was treated a lot differently beforehand. 
So, you know, there were flaps of UFOs seen all over the country well before 1947. Right. And in the, you know, before 1947, people were free to express themselves and talk about this and not be thought of as, you know, Looney Tunes or, ha you know, cranks or whatever. Uh, after uh, the, the early 50s is when this program of um, disinformation began. After that, you know, the, the public started treating the subject. They were trained to treat the subject differently. Right. And, and that's I, how this all came about. Yeah. And I remember um, seeing, you know, these pilots who had seen things that when they did report that they saw things like that, some of them were losing their jobs. And this happened sure. in Japan and this happened in the United States. So, you know, they see it and they didn't want to report, although we have, you know, recently heard from, you know, even astronauts who have come uh, you know come clean on what they've seen not entirely sure. but we have had that and we've had pilots coming up and you know for those people who are listening and they you know they're not familiar with what happened in roswell um you know there was a ufo crash and there was a, you know at, at first they well why don't you tell it i don't want to tell you you know more even about it but uh, the fact that they first did report it as a UFO, and then all of a sudden they said it was a weather balloon or something, right? Well, sure. The Air Force uh, was part of the uh, disinformation campaign. Project Blue Book was a public relations stunt. I'll call it a stunt because it wasn't anything. It had nothing to do with research, um, although there were two, uh, several officers assigned to Project Blue Book. Its main focus and task was to uh, basically, you know, cover up and basically cause the subject to be treated in a benign way or, or explain away all these different sightings as, you know, you know, swamp gas, Venus, uh, you know, weather balloons, and that, that sort of thing. It was a way of softening the blow of this reality to the public and then shift their focus to, you know, blasé, mundane ex explanations. Mm. Um you know, because it's much easier for somebody to believe it was a weather balloon than it was uh, a vehicle from a vehicle or some object from another dimension or planet. And of course, in those days, they didn't even consider dimension. They only considered our universe, our solar system, you know, other planets, that sort of thing. It was a very linear type of thinking. Right, right. But a lot of things have changed. I mean, now we had, you know, I've been watching that series, Project Blue Book, and mm -hmm. and there is, you know, ancient aliens every Friday night, which I watch because I think it's mm -hmm. fascinating. And they have experts like you on there. They have experts and professors and uh, pilots and, you know, all this real documentaries of this kind of stuff that's happened. And, um, and I think that's coming more to the forefront. I mean, I think ancient aliens has been on like 12 or 13 years and yeah. this, this contact in the desert is seven years. And Lloyd and I went to alien con last year when they were um, doing uh, all sorts of interviews with experts. These are people who are credible people like you that are um, really coming out and explaining what's happening and doing the research and finding out what the CIA did and, and some of the uh, concerns about, how they were trying to keep this private. And this is why I decided privacy piracy really should talk about it because it is really a, a secret and a private thing that we all should know about. So, sure. yeah. So that's why it's so wonderful that you're going to, you know, you're going to be speaking at the contact in the desert before I go on. What, what are you going to be speaking on? What uh, kind of share that, what you're going to be talking yeah, about? Yeah, for sure. I'll be uh, speaking on Saturday at about eight thirty in the morning 
And I'll be talking uh, specifically about um, the Navy. Uh, I'll be talking about the Tic Tac video. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but and and now the new policy that the Navy's adopted about what they're they've actually adopt they're adopting a new form where their pilot that their pilots can complete if they see an identified aerial phenomenon or have some sort of an experience like Commander David Fravor had back in 2004 uh, off the Nimitz. So um, maybe I can talk about that a little bit. Some of your viewers may not be familiar. Yeah, why don't you do that? So in December of 2016, I'm sorry, December December 16, 2017, Mm -hmm. uh, a a story was released that an F-18 pilot um, had had an experience with a UFO that was well-documented, video and otherwise. Oh, right. But the rea- the, 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 more, the, the detail to that story is that Commander Fravor, who is the uh, pilot that came out publicly and talked about this, and he was on CNN and CNBC and MSNBC. He was all over the place. He yeah. was on Fox. Anyway, he, he was brave enough to come forward and tell his story, but in fact, it wasn't just him. It wasn't just he that had the experience. It was just about everybody uh, in this carrier task force over three days. Mm. He just happened to be the guy that, um, was that rolled enough. in on this. Yeah, well, it so. was, and brave enough to come forward. And I don't know if that was instigated by somebody else or he just decided to start talking about it. But the incident happened uh, in November of, 20, of 2004, November, I think it was 11th through the 14th, 11th through the 14th of 2004, um, it was a Nimitz carrier uh, task force doing workups off the coast of California, clear blue skies. Uh, um, those days, the weather was good. And um, the uh, carrier task force had been tracking multiple objects, usually in groups of 10 or 20 that were coming down from 80,000 feet. And this is not around them, but just off the coast of California and around Catalina. Uh, the task force itself was closer to San Diego at the time, but of course their radar, they can track these things and they were watching these objects stream down in seconds from 80,000 feet to 20,000 feet Hmm. and then up again. And they were just kind of like 10 to 20 objects at a time doing this kind of weird movement. And they estimated the speeds at about 250,000 miles an hour in some cases. So uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of speed. But right. keep in mind that these things don't they don't disrupt they don't seem to disrupt airflow for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so these this group of objects was slowly moving down the coast at about twenty knots as they're going up and down like yo-yos, and they were very very curious, of course. But you know, not being close to the battle group, they weren't a threat or didn't pose a threat at the time. Well, then finally, the uh, I believe it was the 14th rolls around, um, and I'm, I might be wrong on my dates, but it, it was in 2004 and it was November. I might be mm-hmm. wrong that it might have been third through the fourth instead of the 13th through the 14th. Anyway, they're launching. Now they're going to do air ops off the Nimitz, and uh, Fravor uh, happened to be uh, on catapult for the 9 o'clock launch. He, he and his wingman and, and then another uh, – he and his navigator and then another wingman. And they launched, and uh, before the launch, um, a guided missile cruiser, the Princeton, was, uh, they had the Airboss on there, and, and they were, had been tracking these things, and uh, the radar operator had been tracking these things intently since like 3 a.m., and he said, hey, look, Skipper, I think we need to get an air identification on these things because they're getting awful close. Mm. So when they launched Fravor, that wasn't his task, but after he got up in the air with the other 
with the wingman, they vectored him to this object that happened to be on the um, surface of the water and close to them. Wow. So they got over there and uh, Fravor got a visual on this thing. And it was down at the uh, surface of the ocean and underneath it, it was this little, he described it as a white Tic Tac, which is why they call it the Tic Tac video, although it's a misnomer. Anyway, he described this thing about the size of a car, maybe 20 foot in length or the size of an F-18. He wasn't quite sure, but it was, it looked exactly like a Tic Tac that you'd pop in your mouth, you know, for a a breath mint. Yeah. So he directed his wingman to stay high. They were at about 12,000 feet and he rolled in on this thing. And in a kind of a spiraling downward form motion and the things, and it, oh, I should have, I should have uh, added this Tic Tac was moving erratically over the surface of the water hmm. above a thing that looked to be about the size of a 747 wow. that was ca- causing the water to froth. And it was just kind of doing this weird zigzagging motion over this larger object. Huh. As, as Fravor rolled in on it, it seemed to notice him and it started to do an upward motion in the same, same spiral fashion that he was coming down. Mm. And so as it's noticing him and he's noticing it, he, he decides now he's got a good visual on it. He's excited. He decides to pull, pull nose on it to kind of run an intercept on it. And as that, as he did that, it took that to be sort of aggressive and it beeline for him uh-uh. and then took off at a speed that Fravor described as unbelievable or, you know, like a very, very high rate of speed, sort right. of ballistic, like right. faster than a bullet is what Fravor said, I think. Wow. Anyway, this thing just took off. Huh. So, um, you know, at that point, you know, that game's off. And so uh, Commander Fravor decides to uh, rendezvous at a waypoint with his wingman. And the, the waypoint that they had selected, of course, is encoded and, and secret. It's not something that's like publicly known. Right. And he tells the Princeton what he's doing. And the Princeton comes back and says, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is waiting for you there. Oh, my gosh. At the waypoint. So not only did this thing outmaneuver him at a very, very high rate of speed, it knew where he was going next. Wow. So the question is, did it decode the computer, you know, or right. did it jump into his head and telepathically know where he was headed? Right. Which in telepathy is something these things and these, you know, these beings seem to exhibit quite commonly. So it's kind of hard to say what. But anyway, it's a very bizarre, a very bizarre encounter. So I'll be talking about that at length. Um, I may have, I may have the radar operator of the Princeton on, uh, on the phone with me uh, for the presentation because I've been in contact with him. Anyway, um, but that, that was the the Navy incident that I think kind of uh, was the watershed for this new, uh, policy of allowing pilots to uh, report their sightings. Right. I think we're seeing a big change, and I don't know if, if society is trying to prepare us. I mean, we even heard the, the, the Pope now has come out to say that if there are extraterrestrials, um, that that doesn't negate religion. And, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, and yeah. then more and more people are, are being more credible, coming out about this, explaining this. People, you know, are credible engineers like you, and pilots like you who are coming out, and so it has a lot of credibility. But, I mean, I remember even seeing, like, on Ancient Aliens, they show these pictures, these paintings from the Middle Ages and from, like, you sure. know, uh, that have UFOs in the in the, uh, in the the sky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So very, this very is, clear. Very yeah, clear. You know, yeah. 
frescoes from the 1300s with in the right hand corner a, a guy in an object, you know, and 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 then in the left hand corner is a guy chasing him, you know, and they both they're both flying these spacecraft with emblems on them, and even Leonardo sure. da Vinci, you know. His, he has paintings with that in there. So, And I, I told you before we got on that uh, Lloyd and I saw something from, a, you know, a, something that we saw just on our deck in Laguna Niguel, uh, seeing mm-hmm. this far, you know, not too far from us, maybe a mile away. And then we went online and saw that a lot of other people were saying, did you see that? You know, people in Dana sure. Point, Laguna Niguel. So we saw that. And then I saw something. I was on a cruise ship in the deepest part of the ocean between uh, Australia and New Zealand. And I saw this thing and a bunch of other people, these Aussies saw it with me. Unfortunately, they were so drunk that they... <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> they didn't know what they were doing, but um, but I went in and asked the captain. So, you know, I mean, uh, luckily I've never been abducted. I've never, but, uh, you know, you see things like this and uh, you really start to wonder. So uh, sure. it's, it's fascinating. How has mm. that experience really changed your life? Did you before, did you kind of have any thoughts about UFOs? Did you think about anything like that? Did you? No, they were... They were a mild curiosity to me, probably like most people regard them as sort of like fictitious or, uh, you know, uh, just sort of like legends, sort of something fun to talk about, but nothing real, you know. But then once you see something like this, the rea- it, it all becomes real and you realize that uh, there are things in this uh, in this world that, you know, haven't been explained and have been hidden, have kept, you know, think about the technology that drives a UFO. It's definitely not burning petroleum. Okay, so think about what the disclosure of that technology would do to our economy, for example. Right. Right. So if we were somehow able to capture that technology to reverse engineer, if we could, the tech, the drive of one of these things, it would it would literally change the world uh, and maybe not necessarily in a good way to begin with. So, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of industries would go bankrupt immediately and uh, it would throw Wall Street into a crash, probably so deep, uh, not recoverable. Right. right? (laughs) And and beyond that, everything else that's affected by it, you know, everybody's uh, crying and screaming about, uh, you know, climate change and how we're you know doing this to the carbon footprint and that all may or may not be true but certainly it would change the way we view the necessity of petroleum right yeah and so you know things like plastics and things like that would have to be relooked at how can we remanufacture these things without having to uh right. hurt the environment so in other words everything gets kind of turned topsy-turvy so that's of course, just one- so when you think about it, Steve, all of the reverse technology since Roswell has given us things so many wonderful technology, really, sure. that we've we've had. So, um, you know, those reverse engineering things have been happening. Well, I want to I want to just ask you a little bit more because we are oh we're going. I mean, I could talk with you for hours, but I do want to just kind of do go through your uh, quickly through your evolution. Um, to, to talk about how you went from MUFON and tell what that is to right now where you are really heading your your newest um, organization. So just kind of sure. bring us quickly through that. Well, through the years, I was the, uh, the state section director for MUFON Los Angeles from 2001 to 2013. Uh, and we investigated a lot of sightings. We went out 
and, and visited with people. We, um, you know, we interviewed people, we did field research. And uh, quite often we would find that uh, along with the ufology, there was paranormal uh, phenomenon going on with the subject or with uh, the event. And, uh, you know, MUFON doesn't have a place in their form to talk about things like uh, poltergeists or other other things that that oftentimes that are paranormal, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, paranormal things that that also are, could should be reported. So in 2013, we branched off and became the UFO and Paranormal Research Society, and we believe sort of that these all uh, these phenomena all kind of go hand in hand. There's some commonality. We don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on that uh, it's sort of like the unified field theory. There's something there. We just don't know where it is or when we're going to get to it. Right. But, uh, but by, you know, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't, just because it doesn't fit the mold of a, a nuts and bolts UFO doesn't mean you shouldn't be considering it or taking it into consideration. So that's what, that's what we do. And we meet um, once a month in Studio City on the third Tuesday of the month. And we have speakers come in from all over the world, talk about whatever their field of research is, whether it's uh, you, you ufology or even uh, cryptozoology. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that, Bigfoot and that sort of thing. Uh, could be ghosts, could be uh, what have you. You know, not only we had a guy talk about... Uh, yeah, all these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, abduction goes along with... And, and even in MUFON, uh, they didn't for a long time want to acknowledge the abduction phenomenon, although that's one of the most emotionally uh, traumatizing parts of the phenomenon, and it happens to lots and lots of people. Well, we so, are just, we're really just out of time, so I want to make sure that we give your website and also contact in the desert.com. I'm going to come and mm-hmm. find you, and we're going to have to do another interview after the, the beautiful weekend and all the new things that you're learning. And um, so if you just give your website, it's time to go, Steve. Sure, it's uh, uparsla.org. Again, Thank you so much. And we will have you back again. And hopefully we'll see you that weekend. Okay. Sounds great, Mari. Look forward to seeing you and meeting you there. Okay. Okay, Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Also, you want to make sure that you go to the website at contactinthedesert.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.